Welcome back to the Casting Light Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Marin. Here at the Casting Light Podcast, we talk about lighting, the people that do it, and how they do what they do. We're on the web at castinglightpodcast.com. We're on Instagram at podcastinglight. We tweet at podcastinglight. And we're on Facebook at Casting Light Podcast. This time on the podcast, we are back for the second half of our interview with lighting designer and theater consultant Jeff McCrum. Jeff, tell me about Revit. How do you learn it? How did you learn it? How important is it in your end of the business? There are, we actually all took a class a couple of years ago because it is just different enough from AutoCAD to make you very frustrated. Um, the actual really frustrating thing about Revit at this point is that, you know, I have a, a AutoCAD program and it'll open up an AutoCAD drawing from AutoCAD 2017, right? It'll open up previous versions of AutoCAD. Revit doesn't do that. It says, well, if you want to open up a Revit, if I'm in Revit 2020 and I want to open up a Revit 2019, it has to convert it to Revit 2020. And then it wants to save it as a Revit 2020 model. I can't sort of down save it to Revit 2019. I have to go open up to Revit 2019 and, and so, you know, a lot of that stuff is similar to CAD where it's just frustrating and you have to sort of like do it. You have to do it twice before you realize, oh, oh, now I know how to do the thing. Um, a, a lot of the stuff that we're doing is, you know, I hesitate to use the word cutting edge, but there's no industry wide standard for how we do any of this stuff. There's no sort of theater group that says like all of our CAD drafting shall be like this. You know, USITT has drafting standards for light plots. Yeah. But what happens if you don't obey those drafting standards in USITT's world? They kind of go, well, you probably should have. And it, it's the same thing in architectural drawing where there's nobody who's going to come after me about how I drew some of these outlet devices or how I drew a dimmer. It just should be like about the right size of the thing. And so how one uses Revit, I think, is an awful lot of, uh, you should probably start by, if possible, taking a class or reading a book. Taking a class is stressful because it's a very large and complex thing. And, and, and they could probably try and break it down a little bit easier for you. Uh, it certainly helped me was was having somebody be like, okay, we're going to get to that question later. I know that's a really important question for you, but we're going to start with this other thing first. Um, but eventually you just have to start drawing some stupid boxes. You have to draw, do the same things you, you learned how to do any drafting, draft your apartment, draft your like room, draft your house, draft something that you're kind of there in all the time. And then eventually you kind of have to put in the hours not getting paid on Revit so that later on you could probably get paid in Revit. But, you know, in terms of, of how regular theater people use Revit, I don't know that we will in the same sense, um, because I, a lot of the stuff, especially in, in theatrical consulting, especially my side of things, it has to get captured by the electrical engineer. You know, a lot of my drawings then get handed off to the electrical engineer so they could put together the actual electrical set which the electrical contractor, they're not going to look through the uh, electrical engineer set and then like go find my set. My stuff just won't get bought. <laughs> they're only going to look at the electrical stuff. And the electrical engineer needs to size conduit. This is like an actual, uh, 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 if there's no standards for theatrical drafting, there certainly are for electrical engineering. Like that is what's known as a licensed profession. And that these guys have a lot more at stake to lose their licenses and, and sort of get like really fired from the industry 
So they have a lot more at stake when it comes to like conduit sizing. They kind of have to do that stuff so that buildings don't burn down. And so we kind of depend on them to do all that stuff. And, and you know, it's a, a lot of our stuff is eventually going to be put into Revit by somebody else at times because that becomes their box to essentially wire, if that makes sense. So we only have three projects, I think, in Revit for theatrical lighting at this point, where we're kind of just now really getting a lot of that spooled up because we haven't had to before. Um, the seating department, certainly, and the, the rigging department, they've been doing a lot more Revit stuff because they're putting sort of more design layout documents out there from the get-go in a way that our stuff's being incorporated by this third party anyway that we haven't really had to. Um, and now we're kind of doing it to make that third party's life easier, but there's it, it still has to be captured in their set, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. Tell me about your work on the St. Louis Municipal Opera Theater, a.k.a. the Muni. That was originally built as part of the 150th anniversary celebrations for the city of St. Louis, right? Yeah. Yeah, it is It is an amazing, it has an amazing history. And I absolutely, I love everything about that project. I love the people that work there. I love the city of St. Louis more than I've, I've kind of worked on that project because, you know, uh, it is such a, an institution. Um, you know, I know people who have never been to Shakespeare in the Park, in Central Park. It's free. They hand out tickets. Uh, it's really easy to get to. And, you know, I love Shakespeare in the Park. But again, I know a lot of people who have never been. If you go to St. Louis and you mention the Muni to somebody, literally everyone you talk to will have been to the Muni because they take their last, I think it's like their last 10 rows and they give them out free the day of the show. You can fly into St. Louis. You can hang out all day long. You can around 6 p.m. go to this park in the middle of St. Louis uh, have dinner there and then go get a ticket and go watch an original production of Guys and Dolls for absolutely free. Now you're sitting in the back rows, but that is still 1,500 free seats every night. That is the size of a Broadway house being given away every night for free. And it's it, it like as a result, everyone goes to the Muni because it seats 11,000 people. And so, but I, I love that. I love that project. Um, and I love talking about it because it's so out of scale. I mean, you can see this theater from space. And it was really, it, it was kind of started after the World's Fair in like 1914 or whatever it was. Uh, I guess 1918 is actually the, the start of the Muni. And they found this great hillside. It's very Greek theater-ish. They had kind of built this park for the World's Fair. Uh, Meet Me in St. Louis. Louis is the, the big song from the, movie, from the musical. And they had found this hillside that kind of, raked up like a Greek theater. And they said, well, why don't we just put a stage down here at the bottom of this where a little stream runs through it. Um, and they just kind of built this outdoor amphitheater and they decided that they should do municipal operas. So the first, you know, 10 years were all very operas. And you have to understand that they kind of did it in this glade of trees, that there were like trees on the stage. And as the Muni grew up and they started to do bigger and bigger productions and start to sort of build these buildings, they built buildings around their trees. They sort of left the trees on stage, which was like a totally wonderful, amazing thing to go see. A, one of the productions I saw while I was sort of there was Into the Woods. And so to not know where the scenic woods 
and the real woods sort of stopped while you're in this park. It was really absolutely amazing. Um, and so it's a really big space and a lot of their solutions are completely new and different and clever. And they've, they've come up with, with solutions through the years that are astonishingly clever. It's outdoors. The proscenium is a hundred feet wide. Um, they don't really have much of a front of house. Um, and they, they sort of have this weird catenary that was literally, you couldn't, when you went up to focus, you had to maintain your balance on the uh, uh, one by like the, the 12 inch wide plank that you were out there focusing on. Because if you leaned forward and, and sort of aimed the light and then leaned back, the light, the whole catenary would move. My God. And so they kind of wanted to maintain that sort of like light and delicate airy thing and not really see anything, but at the same time, like not have to deal with that. And so they, they kind of came up with a, a ton of solutions over their, their past hundred years of history that theater people would never sort of have come up with because, you know, this, this wasn't a solution that the Greeks came up with. And so we're, we kind of have this modern day Greek theater that, how do we come up with, with an interesting new solution to the same old problems like scenery changes? You know, one of the, the problems is that your proscenium is hundred feet wide and you don't have any fly space. You can't bring stuff in and there's a river that runs underneath your stage. So you can't sort of bring stuff up. It sounds like so, Bregan's a little bit. Yeah. And so how do you solve scenery change problems? How do you kind of have a downstage thing and then upstage you get 76 trombones all together to like actually then come out of that, that great moment at the end of Music Man? And so one of the really clever solutions that they kind of came up with over the off season a number of years ago was they have these giant and there's, there's two sets of them and they're 50 feet long, 55 feet long, these giant booms that roll on and it's counterweighted and so all of the weight is off stage. So you have these two things that are 50 feet long and they come together in the middle and they meet. Wow. Yeah. It's an amazing feat of engineering that these, uh, again, I think it was the IA team, the uh, IATSE team who kind of worked there for like 30 years. People who work there, they talk about how their grandfather worked there. They talked about how their father worked there. You know, wow. it's just this gen multi-generational thing. And like, oh, yeah, my dad came up with that idea and I'm still doing it. Or I talked to the guy who now does that. And, you know, the, the lovely lady in props who now she does the thing that my dad used to do. And it's really amazing. But one of the things that they kind of came up with is these two sets of, of booms that sort of come in and meet in the middle. And they're, they're floating off of the deck for that 55 feet. So there's no tracks in the floor or, or anything like that. That's and very so impressive. Can, yeah. So they, they have all these paintings that you can kind of put on there. And now you're inside the club. And then you kind of bring in the upstage ones. And then the club goes away. And now we're kind of uh, uh, out on the streets of New York City for guys and dolls. And then like that goes away. And now we're someplace else. Uh, and we can kind of use all of the depth. And so it's a really series of, of clever solutions for problems that don't exist anywhere else mm -hmm. uh and and sort of will never be like i can't take that design solution to the <laughs> delacorte and be like hey i have a great solution for how we're going to get scenery on stage and they're going to be like yeah we just built a set we just built a set that was 30 feet tall and it doesn't go anywhere and i'll be like no no we have these big booms and they go well how do the actors then get on stage dummy and so they they came up with these really clever brilliant solutions that that are are very common for them that like we don't get to use anywhere else. And I, I really like those projects that are, are sort of very unique in that way. And so one of the, the big problems was that 
they kind of were using older technology. All of their cue lights, for example, was something that somebody had made in the 1980s and that was now failing. Mm -hmm. Um, Their catenary positions, they certainly weren't ready for LEDs when they kind of did this space. One of the big problems was that they just didn't have data that went around. When they do shows, they kind of have this amazing rep plot that is, you know, three, 400 fixtures. And every summer they have to get out the dimmers and they have to get out the Sokopex and they have to, they kind of have to do all of the same stuff over and over again. Um, and so one of the solutions that I sort of came up with was to eliminate them having to sort of run all that Sokopex and all of that power, to, all of the data, if at all possible. So we just basically, um, you know, we were also in that era where are we going to go LED? Are we going to stay tungsten? We still have, we own all of these dimmers, but we rent the light fixtures. And so there's a room where there's just a whole series. I think there's like four company switches, 400, four 400 amp company switches in a row. And the idea is that if it's relays or if it's dimmers or whatever it is, you wheel that stuff into that room, connect it to the uh, power. And then we just have a, a panel board, which is another series of Sokopexes that then distributes the power from there. So whatever your electrical power is, is kind of entirely up to you. Mm-hmm. Whether you want to make it relays, whether you want to make it dimmers, whether it wants to be 208, whether it wants to be 277, 240, whatever sort of the, what I call the electrical cloud of theatrical mystery <laughs> is kind of entirely up to them on a season by season basis. And then it ties into these same sort of electrical distribution set. So they can kind of, what, what they did uh, last year was they, they actually did move over to LEDs. So they brought in relays and they tied them in and then they tied into the, the panel board uh, uh, distribution panel. And then it just magically takes all of that power up to the catwalk. It just magically takes all that power and puts it all upstage. It just magically takes all that power and puts it, uh, they have these two garages for all of their side light where the fixtures actually are on these giant conveyors and now the fixtures now come out but then they can retract for the winter time so that mm. the raccoons won't get to them um and they sort of like wanted to try and find things where they didn't have to do as much uh rehanging and sort of redoing the same thing year after year and so we basically took all of their socopex runs and put them in conduit and now they can kind of come in and tie in a thing and now it magically talks to the lighting console which can be anywhere because it's all just Ethernet. Um, we used a lot of fiber. There's two towers on either side, and uh, there's a fiber line that ties between the two of them, and then they kind of distribute uh, Ethernet from those two stage left and stage right things, um, because we didn't want to sort of keep building more buildings. But we have a, a bunch of little clever circuits sort of hidden around that they can tie into, and now it suddenly goes back to this wiring. And, and so then their breakout is just now here, they don't have to run 200 feet of cable. Got it. I have a question for you that's very specific now, uh, because I tripped over something with uh, specifying Sokopex panel boards in a venue and getting the electrical contractor saying that the gauge wire we need to install for the run length you have won't fit into your connector. Um because they were saying, you know, for these runs, we need eight gauge. For these runs, we need six gauge. And we cannot wire those into, into a Sokopex connector. How did you solve that? Because I didn't really have a good answer. Uh, where was this? Was this in New York City? Yeah. Well, New York City actually has a very specific uh, uh, lighting code that is specifically for theatrical use. 
And uh, I want to say, if we're really going to get into the depths of it for the next time that you have to deal with this, I want to say it is in the New York City Lighting Code, it is 620.6. And it basically says for circuits and raceways that are being used for theatrical purposes, you do not have to derate the cable. So you don't need eight gauge or six gauge or whatever gauge because you were not derating it. A lot of times they have to increase the, the cable size because of, oh, we have to worry about voltage drop. We have to derate the cable. If you have a 20 amp receptacle, you have to feed it with cable that can handle 20 amps, right? Usually what happens is that when I say I need a 20 amp thing here, so most receptacles in your house are actually rated for 15 amps yeah. because there's a bit of derating that takes place. Um, panel boards, they actually, at 80, it's assumed like we're going to use 80%. So when you say, no, no, I need all 20 amps to come out of this receptacle, they go, well, I can't just use 12 gauge. I have to derate the cable that feeds into that thing. And that's why I need to use six gauge. Well, the answer is in New York City, you don't have to derate that cable when it's going to be used specifically for theatrical purposes. And it's the, if we took all six of those circuits and we put 20 amps fully on all six of those circuits, then we really would be talking about, okay, now we're talking about heat as a concern. Now we're really talking about but we might have 20 amps on one of them in that bundle, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so when you get to electrical engineers who sort of do a lot more of this stuff, you, you kind of can explain to them that we have a code. It does take that into account, and especially for theatrical use, that we don't have to derate these things, that they actually are allowed to do that. Uh, one of the bigger problems I actually have on Socopex on the electrical engineer side is that the the wire colors, if we ever use something that is a regular Socopex, but then try and use it for 208, then they go, but you, you what, like which, like you have two hots and a neutral, then the hot is defined as a white wire. We can't do that. Like that's, yeah. that's, that's actually why the, you don't tell them. Well, <laughs> that's why there's two things that are very important. One is you don't tell them, <laughs> but the other is, that you get, you say you must wire every every wire in this connector. You cannot bust the neutral. Yeah, and so we we do request that they they kind of have neutrals for everything, and then we just essentially don't tell them that we're going to use it for two away. Because again, <laughs> it's also the idea that 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 these end users they just want it to work and they don't want to burn it down themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're 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 highly trained people in the, in the first place, um, and I think a lot of the electrical code. And a lot of the electrical contractors aren't used to people who are highly trained, who are very aware and, and sort of who probably after the electrical contractor leaves are just going to open up some of these panel boards and solve some of these problems themselves. Hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Uh, if we could go in another direction and talk about another theater that you worked on, that's sort of at the opposite end of the spectrum, but in my opinion, also very important because it is the only professional theater in its city Blue Barn Theater in Omaha. Oh, yeah, you know, it's that is Blue Barn is a, a labor of love. I think from everybody That's clear from looking at it. From from everybody who worked on that project, whether it was one of the architects, whether it was somebody at FDA, whether it was one of the end users, you know, we we all just kind of fell madly in love with this tiny little space in in Omaha that seats 99 people. It was just such a, a, a wonderful project to work on because I guess similar to the Muni, now that I think about it, so much of the community is involved in what they do at Blue Bar. And that it, it is, as, as you say, it's the only sort of uh, uh, 
commercial theater space, uh, professional theater space, but they, they, the whole community really turns out and really supports it. Uh, their lobby space is filled with art pieces from local artists who just said, I made a thing for your lobby. Um, somebody came in and they, they kind of took down some of the old barn wood because the Blue Barn Theater started in a blue barn. They took down some of the barn wood and one of the uh, carpenters in town who makes furniture basically made their lobby like entry desk and just like over a labor of love. He would just kind of come in for four hours a night or kind of on weekends and just kind of mill this worked wood down and kind of fit it all in and do this amazing millwork piece in their lobby. And he didn't get paid for it. He just loved that space. And so, you know, again, that was a, a really great opportunity with end users who we got to have real long conversations with about how they're going to use their space, about what they want to do in their space, about how we can really help them with what they wanted to do in their venue. And, and you know, I, I think uh, Josh will periodically talk about how theater is transformative and and it's not just how the the shows are transformative but like the entire process of going to the venue is transformative um we don't try to use the word black box anymore in the office because the the sort of why do boxes have to be black why can't it be a dark blue why Mm. can't we kind of and, and so uh blue barn really took that philosophy into account and so the walls are a dark blue and there's these dark timber columns in the middle of the space and uh, these, these timber columns that sort of frame the audience space. And it, it's not a black box theater because it's not just a black box that, that, like, uh, uh, that space doesn't have to be neutral. It can be a transformative space and, and they actually have their back wall, which swings open to this patio space, which suddenly means that they can have like a performance all the way out there and, and sort of uh, uh, really make that, really transform that volume of space, that venue into a, a really interesting space of, uh, uh, again, you can't really usually increase the volume. You can kind of at the some theaters in, in Lincoln Center, for example. It's an old fashioned theater where they, they kind of are repertory. So they just have like a hundred feet up stage. And so the Blue Barn can kind of now just have like 40 more feet up stage and they can they can kind of, use that space and then close it down for other things. And so to, to have an opportunity to, to really talk with those end users, um, I remember the um, lighting designer there, she was very adamant that we just put six circuits into their little tiny theater booth. You know, I don't, we, we doubled them. So it's, they're kind of not only for the theatrical booth use, but they're kind of there when she wants to use them. She just kind of has to take away six circuits from her front of house, or she can only use like one circuit. And then still, but, you know, it was a case where we tried to listen to them as much as possible and just do what they wanted because they have to use it. That, that mm-hmm. she wants these circuits there, then I am perfectly happy to put circuits there and then find a way so that she doesn't sort of lose six circuits in her. I think we had a, a, one rack of 96 so that she didn't kind of lose some of her capabilities elsewhere for when she kind of needed like one fixture uh, uh, in the booth as a follow spot or whatever. What were the overall goals in the construction of this new building for the company? You know, they, they wanted to sort of get out of their barn and having to set up chairs and sort of having, they have a very small staff and they found themselves just using an awful lot of their staff time maintaining and sort of uh, uh, 
solving electrical problems and how do we get data around and are we set for the next you know, 50 years of Blue Barn. And a lot of it was was sort of how do we kind of solve some of these problems in a more permanent basis so that we're not spending all of our time sort of like, oh, yeah, that, that thing doesn't work anymore. That's okay. We just don't use it. You know, how could they kind of get their space to be easier for fewer people to run? Because I think a lot of times when, when we kind of start doing theaters and start building them in found spaces, you kind of borrow some dimmers from some people and then you kind of run some circuits and you kind of end up having wires kind of just run everywhere back to these CD80 racks. And, you know, it, it works really well for a number of years, but then after a while you kind of go, we put that wire there for one reason and I don't remember what it was and is it important? And you just kind of leave it. Mm-hmm. And, and if you kind of have an opportunity to, to then suss out all of these extra wires and do they actually go anywhere do i kind of need them to still be there still or can we kind of clean that out and now i kind of have an extra 100 foot cable i think they just kind of found themselves doing an awful lot of that and so an opportunity to sort of put stuff in conduit and have ethernet everywhere um you know ethernet has been such a a groundbreaking thing for all data to kind of get away from yeah it's not just dmx and now it's an in or it's an out or the idea that now it can have wireless things, and it, it it's it's such a, a a game changer for how we get data around to, to spaces. It's like it's a it's a D specifier where it's like it's it's like you don't have to specify eight different connectors for eight different purposes, and then male or female. It's it's just Ethernet, and it can <laughs> and in a lot of cases it can be what you need it to be. Yeah, exactly. And you know, a lot of people sort of come to me and they go, "Now we've always used DMX, and we kind of really have a good handle on that." And I go, "No, this is going to be like that, but a lot better." Um, and it's exactly what you're talking about, where it, it scales up to what you need it to be, but then it's not. This is an in, and this is an out, and oh, I have to get a reverser in order to plug my console in there. You know, so much of it is that it just kind of works really well. Um, and I think it's everything that DMX sort of wanted to be when we came out with that. I was actually working in the era pre-DMX. Mm-hmm. And so I recall, oh, well, that's the AMX to DMX box that we have on the wall and so-and-so made it. And, you know, and, and sort of having, oh, we can't use those dimmers because those won't talk to our lighting console was a real nightmare. And and I think Ethernet kind of provides another step forward in that evolution of de-specifying things and i think i'm going to steal that (laughs) from when you came on the project what kind of conversations were you having and then what did you need to deliver to them and who did you need to deliver it to yeah and so a lot of the the stuff especially when you kind of are dealing with people who are really familiar with doing it in one way that it's always been that way the idea that like the house lights are always the rheostat of the wall and you take the thing and you turn it to this level and that's house at half and then you turn it to this level and that's house out but don't push it in because then they blink to full for us you know we always kind of have these problems with existing venues Mm -hmm. and sort of when you talk to people, they kind of go, I just don't want the real stand on the wall to do that anymore. And, you know, these days with Paradigm or Echo or other sort of holistic lighting systems where we're taking on the house light responsibility and we're controlling those house lights and we're controlling the theatrical lights all in one system, you know, kind of talking people through some of these new ideas and, and sort of shifting that, for lack of a better word, for shifting that paradigm can be sort of most of the t- most of the stuff that which you kind of talk about on a project. And so especially for that one, 
a lot of the stuff had been like, well, that's how we're used to doing things. And it was like, okay, we're actually going to make it better. So now your lighting console can control your house lights. We can give you a slider. We can kind of put a thing on the wall. We can kind of have a lot of these digital systems still act like that analog thing you're used to, but we're really kind of putting you in a good position for 40 years from now when you know you, you don't kind of need to re realize you can just kind of go to the console and your console can now be elsewhere um one of the things that we sort of tied together that surprised them was the idea that the outside venue uh, uh that they kind of used for cast parties and stuff we we put some theatrical circuits out there under their awning so that when they eventually open up that big ball upstage to use that as part of the theatrical performance space we had circuits out there already mm -hmm. and they were kind of like, but won't that be more money? It was like, well, yeah, but at the same time, now you don't have to have cables that sneak outside this thing that you then have to break and then close the door at night because it's rains or, or whatever. And so we kind of did some of the stuff like that to kind of put them into a position where, you know, you and I had talked earlier about the idea that artistic directors will use the space in ways that uh, architects hadn't intended. We were trying to think of, of ways that, they were going to use the space that they hadn't thought about yet because they had never sort of done that sort of thing before. Like, why would you open up the back wall? I don't know, but maybe you guys will. Yeah. Um, and so a lot of it was, was just kind of getting them sort of used to how we're kind of doing stuff these days with ethernet and consoles. And, you know, when you're, you're kind of coming from two scene preset land, which, which they'd been in for a while. And now we're kind of pre-programming everything. It's, it can be really, intimidating at first mm -hmm. um and i think kind of getting them comfortable with a lot of of these technologies and, and a lot of the idea that we're using ethernet everywhere and what wi-fi means and, and how exactly it can work with your lighting system you know i certainly went through that process sort of when i started it was kind of like wait everything's ethernet now um you know i often joke that that when none of us were looking theater became a, a an it job <laughs> <laughs> but it, it kind of it kind of sort of is an IT yeah. job in a, in a weird sense, but it's also because it makes our lives much, much, much easier to make everything an IT job that like we can kind of use IT solutions for our theatrical problems. And it's an off the shelf thing. And I don't have to call as no problem calling Doug Fleener and having them kind of work on something for me, but yeah. now I don't have to wait four weeks for them to kind of finish soldering the thing by hand. It's just like, oh, I just ran to, to Best Buy and I got a router and I plugged it in and, and now that works. That sounds like a really cool project. Um, you know, it sounds like the sort of almost sort of like the dream if you're going to consult on a, a theater, you know, that it's this specifically important little theater that with big projects. It kind of reminds me of the Cherry Lane, actually, you're looking at the photos of it. Yeah, you know, and, and a lot of it is that I get this all the time and people are just like, oh, but you would never work on my tiny little theater. And I'm kind of like, why would I not work on your tiny little theater? Like it, it, it doesn't, I, I feel like we all have this philosophy that the size of the space doesn't matter because it's really, it's really kind of irrelevant. Like any theater person will tell you like, well, yeah, it's, it's a great little space. Like we all talk about great little spaces yeah. that we've all worked in. Um, and we kind of remember them a little bit better than like the giant massive, things that we've done because they were so much more intimate and much more interesting. And, and I think a lot of people, especially on, on what they consider smaller budgets, they're just like, Oh, I, I don't know if we have the money to hire a theater consultant. And it's kind of like, we'll find a way to make that work mm -hmm. because it's the amount of money that we kind of save looking over bids, for example, 
where they've they've kind of hired uh, an electrical contractor to come in and, and work on a project. And they'll just be like, oh, yeah, so we have a little theater. We don't really understand theatrical lighting. So we just put in like a bunch of dimmers. And, and we solved the problem that way. And it's kind of like, yeah, but it was, wasn't the right amount of dimmers. Did you kind of spend twice as much as you needed to? Uh, I remember working on a project. And are, and are they routed anywhere useful? Are they routed? And, and did you just kind of like put 24 circuits on every single electric? You know, is it kind of like an insane amount of circuits everywhere? I remember working on a project once. Uh, it was up in Massachusetts. And uh, I'm talking to the, the end users. And I was like, oh, you guys have like five racks of dimmers in here. Like in the renovation, are you guys looking to use all five of those dimmer racks? And they were like, yeah, that was a weird day. And I said, what are you talking about? And essentially what had happened was that the school had decided that they wanted to get them new dimmers, which is a great thing. They just hadn't talked to anybody who was in the theater department about it. And so what they did is, you know, they had a, a, a dimmers in the corner with uh, two pin and ground plugs, and they had a bunch of circuits that they had run over the past 60 years. And when they needed a circuit on the front of the house, they just did a physical patch into the dimmer rack. So they mm -hmm. had like 500 circuits running everywhere because they just, same sort of thing where it was like, oh, well, we just ran another circuit because we weren't sure we could trust that one. And so the building's engineer, the college's engineers came in and they saw the 500 plugs there and they said, well, they must need 500 dimmers. Wow. So they went out and they bought five racks of dimmers. Wow. Which from my perspective is like, that's amazing. <laughs> like, yeah, let's do that. But when we did the renovation, we actually took one of their racks of dimmers and we set it aside for this new like rehearsal space that, that they were kind of building. And we kind of took half a rack of dimmers and we used it for house lights. And we took the other three and a half racks and we just properly distributed those circuits to be useful for them. So we kind of ended up building two theaters out of these dimmer racks that just arrived like one day when they just started wheeling them down the thing. <laughs> but like that meant that the college at some point had spent $42,000 that they didn't need to. And I don't care how big your theater is, but like you can hire a theater consultant for $42,000. Yeah. Because they then had to wire it. They then had to run circuitry through it. They then had to get power to it. You know, all of that stuff adds up. And it was probably, in the end, probably a hundred to $150,000 of stuff that they didn't need to spend. That if they had spent that, if they spent like a third of that on a theater consultant, they still would have made money. That's a really, really good case study for why it's important. Yeah, because I think, I, I often am surprised at, at how, what what kind of projects we'll work on. And it's it, none of us ever go like, oh, that's too small of a project for us. Sometimes I'm just like, this is like the, the right size project that we're all really excited by, if that makes sense. Um, you know, because, again, we, we all just kind of want to make theaters less worse. You know, I, I don't think we're ever going to get to the point where, like, we have, like, this amazing space that we've just, like, totally nailed. Because um, there's always going to be like, oh, man, we really kind of missed that one. Sorry about that. Mm -hmm. Or somebody will be like, oh, yeah, didn't they ever tell you that I, I don't ever actually do any dyeing in my costume shop anymore, so I don't need that vent hood? Yeah. No. Oh, well, now I have this whole dye station, but, you know, I, we just don't do that anymore. Oh, sorry. You know, it's always stuff like that. Uh, so, I, I, you know, I would like to ask you about the Tribute and Light. Um, I know you've been, you've been involved with that from, from the first year, right? Uh, no, I was actually still in grad school. Um, and, and I remember 
being in grad school and, and seeing that on the cover of Lighting Dimensions. And uh, Kurt Osterman said something that has really stuck with me through all these years. And he said, uh, it's, it's one of the few pieces where we're all just looking at light. Mm-hmm. We're not lighting a thing. We're not looking at the thing that's being lit. We're all just observing light. And, uh, you know, I just, uh, that, that project has been such a, a, a touchstone for, for my time here in New York that, you know, to work on it every year. And it's, it's kind of like a family at this point. It's the same staff who's setting up the lights. It's the same people who are kind of focusing them. It's the same group of people. And we kind of get together at this point once a year and we talk about our kids. It's like a weird sort of family reunion. Mm-hmm. to sort of spend time with these guys. And so um, I got involved in that project around, I want to say it was around 2006 was probably one of my first years. Um, it, it had just recently moved to its current location. Uh, the previous locations when it was first started uh, was right next to the site, which is now where a Whole Foods is. Um, around 2004, four or 2005, I want to say they had to change locations because they were going to sort of take over that parking lot. And so they used this new Google earth technology, which had just sort of been rolled out to sort of look at New York city from above and try and find a flat space where they could set up these, these 88 lights. Um, Cause they had just also moved over to space cannon fixtures as well. Um, and so it was kind of a, a number of things that they were kind of trying to solve a couple of years before I came along. So when, when I came along, things had kind of really sort of solidified into what it is today, which is these 88 space cannons on top of a municipal garage. And uh, they rent generators and, and plug them in outside. And, and it all is very sort of, oh, yeah, we're going to do that thing again. Got it. So who were the original designers? The interesting thing about that project is that people don't, especially the designers, they don't really talk about it a whole lot. They, they don't sort of like, you don't see a lot of press about their design work. They, they kind of did this thing for New York City as a, a gift, if you will. And then that was really it. Um, so the original designers of the uh, Tribute and Light were a uh, collaboration between architects John Bennett, Gustavo Benavardi of Prown Space Studios, artist Julian Leverde, and Paul Mayota of Creative Time and the Municipal Arts Society, and also Richard Nash Gould of RNG Architects and Paul Morantz of Fisher Morant Stone. And essentially what happened was uh, two of the major players, Julian Lavillard and Paul Mayota, they were working on a project that was going to take place at the North Tower of the World Trade Center. And so uh, uh, the Municipal Arts Society had given them office space that overlooked the site. Um, they weren't actually in the towers. But their project was going to be taking uh, an LED series of, of uh, uh, LED things, and they were going to put it on one of the towers of uh, the, the, the spires of the North Tower. Mm-hmm. And they were going to have uh, probably over in the, uh, the Newark Science Museum a set of the, the little creatures that let off light. Uh, phosphorescent like creatures. bioluminescent uh... bioluminescent creatures and they were going to shoot a camera at that tank and as those little flashes popped off of bioluminescence it was going to radio over to the tower and the little led thingy would glow and so over the course of time as more and more of those things would glow this sort of spire would glow a little and it was a really interesting piece that uh they were working on and so when september 11th happened they 
kind of on the twelfth didn't know what else to do. Their entire project was was now impossible, and so they just kind of went into the office anyway because they didn't know what else to do. Um, and sort of while looking at that that sort of space, kind of wanted to to recreate the towers as as best as they could from what was left and the mm. idea that they they came up with this project uh, uh, that was called Phantom Towers and they did this rendering for the New York Times Sunday Magazine and it was kind of these the idea that they would take lights and just kind of shine them up into the air um, and at the same time um, the the group of uh, uh, John Bennett and Gustavo Bonavarde of Prune, Prown Space Studios they had this idea of we need to sort of fix New York City's skyline. And so they were going to tow barges with lights into the into the Hudson River and shine them up. And so it was really this, this sort of group of people who both came up with this idea of, of fixing New York City's skyline in a manner as sort of uh, uh, nobly as possible, who kind of came up with these ideas. Uh, they contacted uh, Richard Nash Gould, who's another architect sort of like you've worked on projects like this before, what could we do? And, and he came up with, we should call Paul Morantz over at Fisher Morantz stone. Mm -hmm. um, when the uh, New York times magazine came out with phantom towers on it, basically uh, Paul was like, Oh, I bet I'm probably going to get a phone call about this. So he sat down <laughs> with the principals um, and they came up with sort of like, if we were to do that project, how would we do it? Like they started thinking about it as a, a practical, how would we solve this problem thing? And so originally the uh, uh, original location was, we'll put it up on a piece of scaffolding, put it up, we'll kind of create two scaffolding towers. We'll use moving lights because we can just kind of direct them wherever we need to. Um, and probably using squares as opposed to a circle or a triangle is probably the best way to, to sort of go about it and try and get these individual beams that would sort of create this volume of space. And so, of course, they they kind of went out and they got a bunch of lights and they put them up on these uh, um, scaffolding things. And the one of the real problems with that is back then when, when fixtures needed to home every day, you know, they would shoot a little light through a gap and the, the um, sort of sawtooth edge would go around and it would say, this is where your home is. And sort of, it would count the interruptions in that beam, the, that beam of light inside the light fixture to sort of say, this is where the fixture is in space in time. And unfortunately with all of the dust in the air, homing fixtures would, was like a, a real process when there's 80 of them. Mm -hmm. And so the startup kind of, they kind of took like two hours to start up the rig every night. And the other issue is that when we use DMX and we're, you know, when we talk about this project, it shoots miles up in the air. And so when you have a 180 degree arc that the fixture can do, and then you break it up into 100% segments because your DMX value is even on a 16 bit, you know, that 200, that 180 degree arc is now broken up into 200 little bits. Well, that means like every 1% you sort of add on the DMX value is kind of like one degree. Yeah. And again, when we're talking about a bunch of fixtures that are all lined up and you're trying to make this wall of light, I just need to adjust it with one degree. You can't reach over and just shove it because all the fixtures will then self-adjust. So then you have to go into the console and you have to get that one and you have to kind of like nudge it. 
but then that's too far. Okay, so put it back. And so the original process was a really time-consuming uh, event, uh, but they kind of got it all done in time for March of 2002 and turned it on and left it on for about 30 days uh, and then redid it again in September, uh, six months later. And so they kind of were doing this time and time and time again with like this DMX and it's kind of a problem. And so one thing they started looking at was, well, if we're going to do this more permanently, if we're going to do this sort of more often, what are some of the solutions we could do? And so uh, I've ever been out to Las Vegas and seen the Luxor. Yeah. That was what they start said, like, well, maybe we could do something like that. So they contacted Space Cannon, which is a little firm in Italy, and had them build non-moving fixtures that's a 7,000-watt xenon lamp. Um, it's about, each one of these fixtures is about three feet tall. I think that's called the Irios fixture, if I recall. Uh, they, Space Cannon has, is now defunct, which is a, a real shame. And, and certainly difficult when it comes to using the fixtures every year. Yeah. Uh, we actually fly in a team from Italy who originally built these fixtures to help maintain and sort of make sure that they're all still working and bench focus them and, and things of that nature. Um, and so they show up from Italy for about two weeks before the 11th um, and, and kind of spend time in New York and, and hit fix. It's interesting to kind of watch them fix fixtures. Sometimes it involves a hammer. Um, you kind of think about these very <laughs> fragile things. And then these kind of guys who are, you know, they kind of like have a cigarette hanging out of their mouth and like hitting it with a hammer. Um, and so sort of switching to space cannons, uh, one of the, the difficulties there is, of course, how do you still focus the space cannon? Because now, like, do we unbolt this thing and then adjust the thing? Or, and then, like, we have to adjust it on the other axis. Uh, and so FMS came up with a really clever solution, which is an aluminum frame that holds the fixture and uh, has a plywood base. And then each one of the fixtures actually has uh, a bolt in all four corners with a threaded nut on the end. And in order to focus the fixture, you basically tighten the bolt down and that just moves the whole mm -hmm. fixture. And we will uh, basically do half turns. We'll do a quarter turn. Uh, this is a, a half-inch bolt, and I want to say there are 24 threads. So I'm actually asking them to move this fixture and elevate it uh, uh, 148th of an inch or 196th of an inch. And we can see that adjustment being made. Mm -hmm. It makes a lot more sense than the than the sort of the DMX pan and tilt method, which you know honestly I can't believe it worked at all. Considering what is it that you know you're focusing on a point that's 20 miles you know overhead over the site, right? Well, you're well, the weird thing about the focus is you're not focusing on a point. What you are actually focusing on is you're trying to get the uh, so light is a cone, and every time it comes out of a, a thing with reflectors, it's a cone. And so what you're trying to do is actually get the outer edge of that cone vertical mm -hmm. for as long as it can um so you're not actually trying to focus on a point at all you're just trying to get that that line of light as vertical as possible the outer line and if you kind of step back and, and look at it you'll see it's a, a long column and then it gets wider at the top what's actually happening is that's the the beam of light that is at this point is a one degree fixture that's the other one degree of the fixture sort of yeah. coming out on the far side um and so, yeah, aiming these things is you can do an, an awful lot from the deck itself up on the garage where we focus them. But we actually have uh, teams of people that are in uh, Jersey City across the river. We have another team that exists in um, 
next to Washington Square Park. Mm-hmm. And, and they're kind of facing directly north and directly west to actually say it looks like the North Tower is leaning a little south. And that the South Tower is leaning a little bit north or, you know, you, you kind of have them just deal with one wall at a time when they're yeah. focusing. Um, it's a very surreal thing to sort of be focusing because you really have to trust them. They see it in the, the context of the city in a way that you have no context of the city because you can only see the, the buildings that are around you. And so when they say things that sound absolutely just off the rails crazy to you, you just kind of have to do it. And, and have a, it's kind of like that trust exercise where you're kind of falling backwards into somebody else's arms because you're, you're just trusting that they're making the right call to do this thing. And again, everybody is, is really very invested into this product project to make sure that it, it looks right on, on the 11th. Because it means, you know, I, I think we found out this year how much it means to everybody. It's an expensive thing to do. It's, it's sort of now paid for and funded by the... Um, September 11th museum and memorial, mm-hmm. but it, it still costs them, you know, we did a rough back of the uh, envelope estimate one year. So it basically costs them about a million dollars a year to do this project. And they're, they haven't been open for very long. So they haven't really sort of built up that endowment that the Met has, for example. And so it sometimes I think is a little difficult for them to kind of face the reality of this cost of this thing. And this year it, it kind of was like, uh, maybe we have to cancel it because it's just kind of too expensive and, and making sure that everyone is safe from uh, uh, COVID was really uh, a difficult thing, I think, for them to have even comprehended in the first place. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it was a it, it's an outdoor venue. It was probably one of the safest job sites I've ever been to simply because it is entirely outdoors. They had fenced off this area for everyone to eat separately at separate desks. Uh, you know, and, and it, there was a, a medical team there, and we actually limited the number of staff that we allowed on site. Mm-hmm. Um, everybody, I think we were kind of limited to 20 people total on site this year. I know I've gotten tired of the opinions from people outside of New York about things that happen here. And like that, I was the pallbearer for someone who died that day. And I also lost people I love to COVID. It's like, you know, it's okay to like not do something to keep other people safe. Like that's okay. Yes. You like, you know, it's like because I, I was an EMT back then. You know, it's it. You know, it's just like let people survive things. <laughs> yeah, and you know that's it, that's one of the interesting things about uh, the this project is is that you know when it was created and when it was designed, it was always designed as a temporary sort of space. It was designed as a temporary thing. It was designed as a temporary solution. And that when there would be a permanent memorial, we wouldn't necessarily have to do this anymore. And it's, it's always interesting to me how people react to me sort of revealing like, well, maybe we just don't do this at some point. They kind of are a little horrified in a way that, you know, it's, it's not necessarily as visceral for for everyone as it as it used to be that that kind of these days I take people who are uh, one of the one of the locations that we use is actually ML Geiger's apartment and so in in exchange I, we like tour the NYU students and sometimes I get people who were in kindergarten when September 11th happened mm-hmm. at this point who really have have never seen the Tribute in Light have no context for it and it's you know they've been to the memorial they've been to the museum. And they've sort of seen the the permanent stuff, but you, you know, I, I really 
I will totally do this temporary exhibition as long as they, they keep doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I really, I like working on it. I, I, I know it's really important to a lot of people that I know, but at, at some point we may stop doing it. Um, and, and I'm going to, I'm still okay with that too, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. What opportunities potentially are there in the sort of end of the business you are in for people who primarily work live or work in theater, work in television, work in live events? You know, everybody, everybody has an opinion in the theater. If, if we were to get a bunch of people together and say, how should we design the show? If we got five lighting designers together, we would end up with seven different ways to do a show. But I guarantee you, I, I absolutely guarantee that any solution that a theater person will come up with as to how to solve a problem inside a theater will be a million times better than an architect's solution to the same problem. You know, we just have a, a, a vast array of knowledge that we have just gained by simply doing our jobs that if anyone is building a new space or, Hey, I'm thinking about kind of putting together a venue, just saying to them, like, please call me and I will help you. You know, if, if the, who's, Oh yeah, my college is building a new space or maybe you've kind of graduated and, and you know that the college is doing a new expansion to their theater or they're kind of fixing things up. Or even if they're just kind of doing the lobby, calling them up as an alumni and saying, hi, I do theater now professionally. How can I help? You know, it, it's such a, a, a useful thing to have somebody who knows about theater because architects often don't know anything about theaters. Um, sometimes end users don't know anything about theaters. Um, that, that if you can kind of talk about the, the, like all of the challenges that people will face from a production standpoint, you can really help out and and whether that's whether you're doing it for free whether you're doing it for $500 whether you're doing it for like $3000 and you're trying to make a, a start of a career about it i guarantee any of the solutions that you can come up with are going to be better than what somebody who doesn't do theater will come up with uh we did a project in uh Charleston South Carolina and the city wanted to build a new venue and they had some space. It was next to the police station and the city owned it. And they were like, let's just make a new theater. And we went down and we talked to them. And we said, what kind of shows do you guys want to do here? And they said, well, we want to do things like Phantom of the Opera. And if you've ever been to Charleston, you know that it is filled with small little tiny one-way streets that are very charming and really well-suited for horses. Mm-hmm. And so we said, so what are you guys going to do with the 16 trucks? Because you guys have a loading dock that will suffice for two trucks. But like... Phantom of the Opera tours with a lot of trucks. And they said, well, why wouldn't we just ask them to come at different times? And, you know, there's just production restrictions that we all know about because we've sat on a loading dock and been like, that's a lot of trucks for this tiny show, (laughs) you know? But, like, they can never do Phantom in that venue because they can't have these trucks just, like, circling Charleston's one-way streets. There's no place to sort of stage these trucks, but they would never have kind of thought about that because that's not really, like, a theater or an architecture problem, but it is a, like, what kind of shows are you going to do kind of problem. So, you know, they can park two trucks there. They could probably have space for a third, but that's going to kind of determine what kind of shows that they do there but because they're not kind of thinking about that stuff, you know, first thing, they didn't actually have a, a door on the back wall of the theater. The idea that the truck would arrive at eight o'clock in the morning and, and then like, how do you get to the stage? You had to go through like a number of different doors that all had like those, those magnetic key passes mm. 
which to any theater person, it's like, well, when the truck driver shows up at 745, how does he let you know that he's there? Does he honk his horn? And you just like, like you have to like have a door for them to pound on, so to speak. Um, and so some of the solutions that, that, are, that architects will come up with or electrical engineers or any of these people, a theater person can look at any plan and be like, wait, 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 where, like, how do we get the set onto the stage? Well, you just use this, you know, we got a swinging door. Yeah, but is that like a seven foot tall standard door? Yeah, is that a problem? You know, we're, we like any solution that you can come up with is a, a really good way to start your career in theater consulting. Because I guarantee that you probably have a pretty good answer in a way that they haven't even thought about the question. Do you have any final thoughts? Anything else you wanted to talk about? It's just fun to kind of have found a career in theater that makes theater better, I think is, is kind of my final summary of, of sort of how happy I am. It's, it's nice to have sort of like landed in a thing that I think was built for me in a weird way. Um, Cause I'm coming to this job with theater knowledge. I'm coming to it from a design perspective knowledge. I'm coming to it from a worked in a scene shop kind of knowledge and how do we drive a truck around the space knowledge uh, uh, architectural lighting design knowledge. So I'm constantly thinking about, you know, a lot of people are just like, oh, Q1. And I go, well, Q1 is actually house to half. Like that's, for me, that's the most important thing that we'll have designed the $60 million building. And if the architectural light fixtures dim down to 10% and then snap to zero, <laughs> like I have failed. Like we have, we have failed because that's all everyone will ever talk about. At the end of act one, when the house lights come up, the next thing they see is the lights jumping up to 10% because we didn't have, you know, dimmable down to 1% drivers. You know, a, a lot of that stuff is, is stuff that I'm constantly trying to solve these problems that some people aren't even kind of seeing down the road. And it's, it's nice to kind of solve these problems and make spaces better. I really, mm -hmm. I really like the, the chance to do that. I remember uh, years ago, there was a, a high school on Long Island that liked doing full-on musical productions, and I you know, came in as a lighting designer, and I was like, what's up with these Parkin rigs out on the box booms pointing into the house? And like, oh, those are the house lights. What? Well, the house lights that are built in don't dim. So we have 12 Parkins per side that are pointed up onto the ceiling that reflect down, and that's the house lights. You know, and that's and that's what I tell architects. I, I will I will tell them, look, we can either solve this nicely and cleanly and elegantly in an architectural manner, or frankly, they're just going to solve it with a hammer when they get in the space. And trust me, the users are going to solve this problem because they just want the space to work. They just want the volume to work. And you know, whether it's we need to think about where we can hang a front of house truss and and like drill a nice hole in the ceiling and how we can cap that off architecturally, because. If architects had their way, there would be no apron pipes. Mm. And I, I come in and I'm just like, no, no, we have to have an apron pipe. And they go, well, do we really? I mean, I really hate the idea that this pipe is going to be in front of the proscenium and it's going to have all these things hanging off of it. Can we just can we tell them what where they can hang off of it? Can we like rigidly define architecturally where these theatrical light fixtures will go? And I have to explain, like, no one will look there. No one cares about this pipe hanging above the apron 
you know, nobody has, even my parents have never been to a show and been like, I loved your light plot. I loved how the fixtures hung up there. You know, we're all watching this little black box filled with actors saying things and moving around. And all of the stuff that they do there is distracting us from the fact that you and I are sitting next to each other in a cushioned velvet seat, all facing the same direction with 500 of our closest friends watching this person pretend to be from jolly old England. You know, we're actually not in England, but like we kind of don't look at that stuff because walking into that venue is a, a, again, the transformative process where we all want to be in jolly old England. We're willing to kind of suspend that disbelief that I don't know this person next to me and their sweater is kind of weirdly riding up on my armrest. We're kind of fighting over, like we forget about all that stuff because we have Hamilton happening in front of us. We kind of have these magical theatrical moments that we don't think about the apron pipes in Hamilton because we're just like, ah, what's going to happen here? Um, and I, I think architects kind of don't realize that that nobody goes into a space and looks at the, the balcony rail or the front of house hang, except if they're theatrical lighting people. Yeah. You know, I'll go into a space and I'll go down into the orchestra space and walk towards the stage and you see the usher, they get that nervous look in their eye. Like, is this guy going to go on stage? And I'm just like, no, no, I just, I just want to look at the lights. And they're just like, okay, now I really don't know what to do. Because <laughs> I can handle you rushing the stage. I can handle like you finding your seat, but you just coming down here to look at some lights. That doesn't, that doesn't make any sense. But, you know, I, I think architects don't fully understand that, that we're all kind of willing to, to spend this belief that like this, this pipe above the apron as a backlight position or a top light position or a spot to hang a truss or, or whatever else that we're going to use it for is, is exactly what creates the magic. Yeah. And I mean, and tell them, hey, listen, if you don't do that, it's eventually someone's going to build a goalpost at a chrome truss to get that position. And that's going to look a lot worse than just that apron pipe. I have a series of photos that I've taken of bad apron pipes that I pull out at meetings to say, this is this is how they will solve the problem. Do you mind that silver chain wrapped around your acoustical thing? Because I mind oh, it. Oh, yeah, that, that, uh, that too. You know, like I mind the fact that somebody took a hammer and hammered a hole in this acoustical thing and then hung whatever pipe they had around underneath it. And then to avoid it from turning, they put a sidearm and then just wedged it up there. Like, again, theater people will solve the problem and architects will hate the solution. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think that's a good way to end things. Uh, Jeff, thank you so, so much for giving us so much information and for spending so much time with us. Absolutely not a problem. Anytime. Thanks for downloading this episode of the Casting Light Podcast. Visit us on the web at castinglightpodcast.com. Use the contact form there to let us know what you think. And you can also check out all of our previous episodes there. We're on Instagram at Podcasting Light. We tweet at Podcasting Light. And we're on Facebook at Casting Light Podcast. Our theme music is Color Me Dead by The Lame Drivers. The Casting Light Podcast is a production of Casting Light Incorporated. I'm your host, Jason Marin. Thanks for listening. Have a great show.